Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting Future Hindsight. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash hopeful. Start living a better life today. We also want to shout out our fellow Democracy Group podcast, 70 Million, which is currently in its fourth season. Take a listen and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. I have a confession to make, which is... I'm one of life's optimists, and I know it's really not cool because cynicism is much more fashionable. But optimism has sustained me through some difficult times, even if we glass-half-full types are sometimes accused of being naive. In fact, people can even get kind of mad at you for being optimistic. But one of the reasons I love making this podcast and talking to incredible changemakers is it really tops up that half-full glass and it confirms my faith in what we can achieve when we work together. And we've been calling on that faith throughout the season on The Social Contract, as we've heard how holding onto a belief that the social contract is worth repairing or that it can be repaired requires us to believe in our fellow humans. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about our belief in each other and about the place of religious faith in American public life. I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan Simpson, president of Auburn Seminary. Auburn is a leadership development and research institute that equips bold and resilient leaders of faith and moral courage to build communities, bridge divides, pursue justice, and heal the world. Founded more than 200 years ago by Presbyterians, Auburn is committed to a truly multi-faith, multi-racial movement for justice. Dr. Jordan Simpson, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So to get started, I would love to set the table with a little bit about your faith background. How did you come to do this work and what brought you to Auburn? Um, Well, it's important to understand the context that I grew up in, born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. And one of the most enduring images of my childhood is the experience of the riots of the summer of 1967 and what that did to our community, what it meant to be a child, (laughs) not yet starting school, in that context of violence, but then also in the midst of that, of watching my mother make a choice. You know, I I was the sixth of seven children that she raised, and she raised us alone. And my mother, who really had very little materially, during the height of these riots, she stood in the doorway of her home, and she made a choice. She opened the door, and she beckoned for people who were caught out in the crossfire to come into our home. 
And that choice really wasn't about knowing that she had enough for us because she didn't. <laughs> and and not even knowing like who these people were. It really was this decision that whatever it was that she had at that moment was enough. And whoever she was at that moment was enough. And she was going to open that door and to offer hospitality and safety. That image of my mother doing that and making those choices really has been something that I have been meditating on and interrogating uh, all through to my adult life. I preached my first sermon when I was 17 years old in Newark, New Jersey, at the wonderful House of Prayer Episcopal Church, a place that invested in me and my voice and an understanding of me as this little Black girl growing up in this very unsafe place, Newark, New Jersey, but absolutely seeing the spiritual and moral issues that I was already grappling with. Part of that grappling, that the formation for me had everything to do with uh, the Negro spirituals, the songs of my people, the ways in which people used coded language to, yes, talk about, you know, things of ultimate concern, but also to offer safety to each other, to send signals to each other, to help each other get to safety. I was uh, fascinated and deeply moved by those songs. And that led me to Fisk University, Nashville, Tennessee, the home of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And I had an opportunity to sing with the singers, to travel with them, to interpret those songs to audiences. After that, went to Union Seminary, one of the best, I think, places for grounding one's voice in the legacy and the history and the, the work of justice. So I've been pastoring a church here in Brooklyn with my husband. We've been here for a little over 30 years. I have had the privilege, however, in this work of being pastor, of not having to be what some would call uh, a bivocational pastor. I am a pastor wherever I am. And so I have worked in the church, but I've also worked in community and led organizations and have had the opportunity to engage with people far beyond my own faith, far beyond my own religion and experience and background in this sort of quest for justice and have been inspired by the ways in which people reach into the depths of who they are to answer these questions of, you know, what is our responsibility to one another? And how do we use the voice that we have to speak to the issues of justice and to make sure that we're all taken care of? Right. Well, you just talked about singing uh, at Fisk <laughs> and the songs. Uh, and in fact, I've heard you talk passionately about the significance of what you call the songs of subversion on your journey. So can you tell us what you mean by songs of subversion and why they've had such a profound impact on you? Sure, sure. When I was a kid, I read something by Frederick Douglass about the Negro spirituals. He called them the slave songs. He said that these songs are a tale of woe, but when told together, they were beyond his uh, comprehension, that there was something about these songs that certainly resonated and lived within his heart, but he stopped trying to understand them. 
So that's the first thing. But he said what he heard in his own people singing these songs is that every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance. And I think that the idea that people have about these songs is that these were enslaved people who were just singing and who were just happy to sing. And what they were doing, however, was proclaiming a gospel that was contrary to the gospel of the slave owners. And they were using language that, of course, spoke to ultimate concern, spoke about heaven and spoke about, you know, love, but also used those words to point the direction to physical safety, you know, to material safety. So I I think about one song in particular that I absolutely um, love, you know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home, right? Those are the words. And so you, you think about the phrase swing low, the literal meaning is, you know, beckoning this chariot to come down. But the coded meaning is to come into these slaveholding states, to call for those who were abolitionists to come into these slaveholding states. The sweet chariot, the ultimate concern meaning is that it is a heavenly vehicle. But for these songs, it also meant the Underground Railroad. Coming for to carry me home, yeah, heaven, but also taking me to freedom whether that was in free states or in Canada. So these songs had these dual meanings. And if you didn't understand it, it was because you weren't supposed to understand it. Because they could sing these songs in the presence of those who meant and caused them danger, but they could speak to each other. And for me, I I came to know that as an incredibly subversive way of engaging the faith, and of seeing the faith as not just this thing that was concerned about spirit and soul, but these songs that absolutely prioritized our bodies and our physical well-being and our freedom. And so, yeah, those songs, you know, uh, they're the song track that play in the back of my head. (laughs) You know, wherever I am, I am singing those songs. I love that you explained it as a spiritual for the here and now as we live on planet Earth in this moment. So turning to the here and now, what role does faith play in the social contract? So this whole question of social contract, you know, this idea that we owe each other something. If we just focus on the United States of America, the questions are in that we, that word we, who are we? And the each other, who is our neighbor? And faith in in, in the major religions of the world have this platinum, you know, standard of neighborliness, of seeing that the good for the other is actually good for me. Doing good for the other is actually doing good for me. And that is what constitutes what it means to be neighborly. And in that we can take that understanding of neighborliness 
as a social contract that is even above our local neighborhood, but our city, you know, our state, our country, but then also globally. And when I think about just what this experience of the pandemic has been and has uh, shown us, it is that we really don't have a grasp of we. You know, who is we? And as much as preachers and faith leaders and and, and sermons talk about, you know, we, we didn't exhibit <laughs> a really strong understanding of we, and certainly not the what then do we need to be doing with and for one another. And for me, as a, a Christian preacher, so I can, you know, yell at my own tribe right now, okay? <laughs> that, so as a Christian preacher, I think about what it means in this moment of global concern that we were not able to, on a large scale, stand and call for the good of our neighbors. That what we ended up doing was covering and providing protection for the state, providing protection for the economy over against people. Definitely a false choice. And so the role of faith, and maybe I would call it moral also, moral courage and moral voice, you know, the the role of faith is to really help us to understand and live the we and then to live rightly, to live justly with the one another. And if we get that wrong, (laughs) when we get that wrong, then we see what played out and what has been at stake during this pandemic, that we are not able to show up for our neighbors and we're not able to provide leadership on the world stage that protects people and protects lives. So in your mind, what would this leadership look like from religious Mm -hmm. faith leaders? You know, because right now I think one of the problems is, at least from my point of view, it's difficult to figure out where religious faith fits in to coalitions that are pro-people, coalitions on the left, if you will, because so much of the ground has been dominated by the religious right. And they have a very different agenda. And so you just mentioned that there was a lack of leadership, but how could it have been better? Or is there still an opportunity? Mm -hmm. There's always an opportunity. It's never uh, too late. I will say that. So I'll say two things. First, staying within the construct of how we think about faith communities and religion and faiths, it could have been different had at the very beginning of the pandemic faith leaders stood strong together and said, we are facing a time that we've never known before. And we have the opportunity, you know, to show what we're made of. And the way to do that is to make sure that we can take care of each other. So if that means that we sacrifice and we wear a mask, if that means that as much as we can, we stay home and we protect the people who are the the first responders, you know, that, that we protect them. That, that lifting that voice that calls us to work together and to see a bigger we than we're experiencing, that was the voice that was missing. 
at the beginning of this pandemic, what we had then turned into this highly politicized and, and fractious definition of what our experience could be and what we were owed, which was our rights <laughs> to not uh, wear a mask. Absolutely crazy, right? But if we stay within the confines of what we sort of see as the defined religions, then that's really, that was the dominant message, you know, that we were not hearing, right? But I want to push us further beyond like what we see as the quote unquote church and then these religious leaders to look deeper in communities and in places where moral voices were standing strong and were putting their action behind their words. And we've always had a problem in this country. We, you know, we want to know who's the leader. Take me to your leader. <laughs> You know, we want to take us to your leader. And if the movement for Black Lives has shown, has shown us anything, this has been a moment that says to us that it's not about a leader, that this is a leader full time, and that spirituality looks different than what we've been able to fit into our soundbite and what we've been able to sketch as this is what American religion looks like. I think most particularly about the incredible conscience and deep morality and spirituality of the mutual aid movement that arose. Well, I don't know if they arose because they were, you know, always here, but really showed us what we, <laughs> what it looks like to have a really big we and what it looks like to really live into the one another. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What have you seen yeah. in uh, the mutual aid movements or groups that you've seen in the last 18 months that give yeah. you hopeful signs about how we can move beyond fractions? Yeah, yeah. So um, so I live here in, in, in New York, in Brooklyn, and as a pastor, trying to listen for what was happening in my own community— I became aware of a group called Bed-Stuy Strong and another group called the East Brooklyn Mutual Aid uh, Group. And I actually had an opportunity to volunteer with the East Brooklyn Mutual Aid Group. When I think about the principles that were in play, even if they were not expressed, you know, as doctrine, as creed, you know, as we do in religion— they valued people, that there were no unworthy people, and that people should get the help that they ask for. So, for instance, around this pandemic and the vulnerability that people were experiencing with food, that you could make it known to the mutual aid group that you needed food. And someone came <laughs> with bags of good, healthy food. Not asking you to fill out an application so that we could have means testing. Not checking to make sure that your request is valid and that you're not an unworthy <laughs> person, but that your voice, your request, your need is what controlled. And that the response as a neighbor was to respond to your need, not worry about whether or not it was 
legitimate. And you had people who were volunteering resources and driving all kinds of things to make sure that people in their communities had their needs met. And this is different from charity and philanthropy. There's a deep understanding that the systems that we created, the policies that we created and invested in during this time absolutely failed the most vulnerable people. And what was needed was to keep our eye on how broken that system was, but then also to show up for people in ways that were meaningful and to not do it from the perspective of philanthropy or charity. And when I say that, I mean it's an understanding of how vulnerable all of us are. Not just these people who are experiencing this crisis right now, but that all of us have that vulnerability. And all of us have to be conscripted into the holding together that we and that one another. And then beyond the sort of material ways that people showed up for one another, then they began meeting with each other, sharing skills, you know, sharing support, weaving and reweaving the fabric of community in ways that were surprising and unexpected. I think about communities that were experiencing gentrification and how during this period, the gentrifiers, <laughs> if you will, had an opportunity to invest in and build community along with their neighbors. And for me, that is a deeply spiritual, it is a value, practice, principle. It is a rebuke even to the privilege, I think, that we have given to certain expressions of religion and faith in this country. We're going to pause for a moment to hear about one of our sponsors. But when we come back, the Reverend Dr. Jordan Simpson is going to tell us about what she believes to be the biggest lie and the ways in which that lie affects all of us. But first, I want to tell you about BetterHelp, the world's largest therapy platform. Its mission is making professional therapy accessible, affordable, and convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours and connect in a safe and private online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. They also offer a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas, which may be especially true if you live in a small town. Licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from relationships and family conflicts to trauma and gender identity. Of course, anything you share is confidential. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses from your counselor when you send a message. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com hopeful. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com hopeful for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. If you're enjoying Future Hindsight, I want to tell you about another show I think you'll like, 70 Million, an investigative documentary from LWC Studios. 
Did you know 70 million American adults have a criminal record? I didn't. I also didn't know about something called offender-funded justice, which is basically when legal systems are paid for largely by exorbitant fines levied against people who are arrested even before they're tried. These and other fascinating and revealing facts about our country's intertwined legal systems provide greater knowledge and understanding, thanks to 70 Million's deeply reported episodes. Over the first three seasons, the Peabody-nominated narrative series has chronicled how remarkable people around the U.S. have transformed legal systems and entire communities in the process. 70 Million's fourth season delves into how police, jails, and prisons became the catch-all for unattended social ills and forgotten populations. It takes on the big questions we must answer as a society about who we are and who we pretend to be when it comes to achieving liberty, and justice for all. Season four is available now. Take a listen and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. For more, visit 70millionpod.com. That's 70millionpod.com. Let's get back to our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan Simpson, a lifelong activist for peace and justice, who's now the president of Auburn Seminary. So uh, in a moment, I want to talk about what repairing the social contract would look like. And I think you've just given us some hints just now. But I want to talk (laughs) about one of the obstacles, right? Like I feel in the United States, the American social contract has been constrained in some ways by the stories of scarcity that we're told, you know, that that there's not enough for everyone, that life is zero-sum. And some people Mm -hmm. are necessarily, therefore, excluded. So where does that believe Mm -hmm. in scarcity come from, and how is it affecting us? Um, Yeah, it is the biggest lie ever. (laughs) Point blank, it is the biggest lie ever. But there is no way to live in a capitalist society without the undergirding of the belief in scarcity and without sort of the juice flowing through that of fear. Because in capitalism, like even the basic sort of like definition of economics means that it's the science of allocating scarce resources to maximize the achievement of competing ends. So even the basic understanding of what we're doing in this economy is about competition and it is about scarcity. And our society, our country is a capitalist country. It creates these false binaries, as you've just alluded to, that good government is about making hard choices. That it's either we're going to pay living wages or we're going to be able to have jobs for everyone, even if they're substandard. That's a false, ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous choice. That even in our budgets, either we're going to take care of seniors or we're going to take care of children. Absolutely ridiculous. And we don't challenge those false binaries. And that is the narrative that is held up by the rich. It is held up by the ruling class so that we're not asking the questions of 
how can we all pay our fair share? What we're doing is we're allowing those who have to have even more. And we are protecting even their right to have more and to keep more while we look at those who have the least. And then we are, you know, in these false binaries and making them the hard choices there. And that is what capitalism is. That is our society. And if we want to have a more generative experience and a more generative society, we're going to have to challenge those notions and reject (laughs) uh, many of uh, those assumptions and those principles. And the difficult thing, I think, in this society around challenging that is that when then faith communities, when the church in particular puts his stamp of approval on that narrative, it becomes almost impossible. And you need a different kind of struggle (laughs) then to sort of dig into those falsehoods. Right. Well, let's talk about your vision of a beloved community, because I think maybe in my mind, maybe if we talk about that more in our in our civic discourse, we might have a better chance at getting that. So what does a beloved community mean to you and what do you imagine? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I first want to, you know, just honor Martin Luther King and his understanding of beloved community and the way his understanding was forged in relationship with the people of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, with civil rights leaders, with people of all faith traditions. This understanding that beloved community is the place, it is the here and now where we have our needs met, where we have housing and food and health and community, where it is not about particularly abundance, it is about enough. And that that community, that state of being beloved, because if you're taken care of, if you're not hungry, <laughs> you know, if, you're, if it's not a, a matter of your belly, right, that that is absolutely possible, like right now, that it is not this thing that we aim for after life, but that it is the thing that we begin to build right now. And in that community, you can't have militarism. Like you cannot have a society that invests or builds its safety on uh, the military, on guns, on weapons, but that builds safety in investing in human security, in meeting people's needs, in neighborliness, and in uh, diplomacy with our neighbors across the world. That is possible. And when moral voices, when faith leaders arise to say that and to keep calling for that, I think we get traction. You know, I I am an abolitionist, right? I, I, I am an abolitionist. But for me, abolition means that every decision I make today that is about the good, the life, the health of people, begins to shape the future 
that we will have tomorrow, where we will all be able to live in freedom and in health and, and in safety. And that is, for me, that is the gospel. And I don't have to die to experience the beloved community. And I certainly don't want my neighbors to die before they experience the beloved community. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful image, and I believe in it too. I believe it's possible. Like I said at the beginning, yes, I'm an optimist, yes. and I really believe that we can do this yes. together. So um, It requires hopeful action, yes. you know? I'm an optimist also. I do see things very hopefully. But that hope is not fantasy. That hope is what drives us to act and to work and to take risks and to go against this huge narrative that is saying to us that we have to get all we can get right now because this is all there is. Right. That's We have to work right. for that. Yes, we don't have a limited amount of time to, to do this. It's, yeah. it's, it's now. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to ask you in a moment about what makes you hopeful. But first, when you think about the social contract, um, what do you envision and how do you see it in action in your work? Well, first of all, I am absolutely ecstatic to be in this seat where I am right now with Auburn Seminary, because the way in which Auburn has always expressed, like, beloved community, like, the, you know, that sort of aim for that, uh, has been this understanding of a world of belonging, that the social contract is a world where we all belong, not fit in. Not are tolerated, but this world where we all belong, where we show up in the fullness of who we are and we belong with each other. And for me, that's the world I'm working for. <laughs> and that social and that social contract then requires something from us. It requires our attention to matters of justice and, and equity. And it, it, it requires us to work for what Martin King called the revolution of values. Because, for instance, we don't want for people to have inclusion in a burning house. <laughs> inclusion in a house where the values mean their death. It, it, it is about revolution of values. And that revolution and that work of revolution, like, requires something of us all. And it, it, it is the thing that we all must work on. But that is the thing that I'm looking at. What does it mean to create a world where people belong and the world in which we are occupying is healthy, is cared for, is prioritized and not just extracted from? It's a different way of living. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's another type of belief I wanted to talk to you about, the faith in each other, which we talked yeah. about in the introduction, right? So where yeah. can non-religious people draw that faith from? Or mm -hmm. is it that I'm just talking about empathy? Um, no, I, I think it's all of that. It's empathy. It is faith. Again, if we expand our notions of what faith is— mm -hmm. When I look at the movements that have 
happened in this country in the last couple of years. I see a deeply faithful movement of people. And again, I want to go back to the movement for Black lives. I'm of the boomer generation, so one of the things I've heard of my generation is these young people are not members of the church. <laughs> and I laugh at that because I know they don't belong to your building, you know, but these are people who believe in each other enough to show up for each other in the streets. That's a kind of spirituality that, again, I think ought to be received as a rebuke and a challenge and an expansion of what faith looks like in this country. For you to absolutely show up, you didn't get in a bus with your church members, although there may have been folks who did that, you know, but for folks who believed in the worth and the well-being of the other person enough to show up and put their bodies on the line, what what do you think that what do you think that is, right? You know, in 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 my faith tradition, we lay down our life for our friends. You know, um, so you don't have to look far. You look for the places where people are valuing people in concrete ways, and you don't have to belong to a church. <laughs> or synagogue, or to embrace that spirituality. Yes, I, I hear you. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And thank you for putting it that mm-hmm. way. That was so moving and really puts everything together, connects the dots. So mm-hmm. in this context, you talked also earlier uh, in the interview about uh, hopeful action. What are two things mm-hmm. everyday people can do to advance this world of a beloved community, of you know being in mutual aid? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've been focused on since the pandemic is this idea of trying to cultivate uh, imagination and imagining what a generative response to community looks like. And it does look like making sure that all needs are met. But I think it begins with showing up in a couple of ways. The first is we all have circles of influence. We all influence people. And we should be mindful about who the people are that we're influencing and yell at our own tribe. (laughs) There's a a movie, you may be familiar with it, The Hunger Games. It's the, The plot of this movie is that society is broken up into these segments and young people then are forced to fight to the death. What we can do is to understand that that is the parable of our times, that we have forced each other to fight to the death for our lives. And so what we can do to that is say, no, that's not who we want to be. That means that for every budget that we have an opportunity to weigh in on, that we can ask in those rooms of influence, who are we pitting against each other in this budget? How are we setting up scarcity in this budget? Who's left out of this budget for the ways in which we're trying to generate revenue? We can ask the question, is this revenue being generated on someone's back? Is it a a continuation of oppression? Does this mean that we're taxing poor people? As you look at the ways in which poor people have debt, Tickets, fines, fees, at the same time that we're not asking for a fair share for those who have 
resources. Those are, you know, absolutely two things that we can do immediately to shift and to be adamant. (laughs) Don't take no for an answer, you know, on those things. And then to be informed of like how we got here. People have been harmed by the systems that we created, by the policies that we created, by the communities that we created. And so as we even look to stepping through the portal of this pandemic, right, and looking toward tomorrow, how are we going to build communities that don't oppress people, that don't call for the sacrifice of certain groups of people and do not require the oppression of certain groups of people. Those are deeply spiritual questions. They're moral, yes. They're deeply spiritual questions also. And we can take them wherever we are and ask in every room where we have influence and refuse any answer that, um, uh, (laughs) any answer that's no. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. This is good advice. So as we are nearing the end of the interview, Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Mm -hmm. What makes me hopeful is young people. You know, I say that uh, not just because I'm a mother, but the ways in which young leaders, young faith leaders show up expanding, like pushing what it means to be we and doing it, insisting on love. I am absolutely hopeful about that. And that is what this mutual aid movement looked like. Young people insisting on we and expanding the notion of love. That is what the movement for racial justice in this country has looked like. You know, people insisting that we belong with one another and people of all stripes, all kinds showing up and insisting that we belong with one another. I am incredibly hopeful about that. And I'm hopeful about the generation of, of faith leaders who are moral leaders, you can call them, with moral voices, moral courage, who are standing up to speak truth to power and not just to external power, but to the power in their own communities. The people who sit in the seats of their congregations in their synagogues and saying, you know, we must walk a higher way. That's beautiful. Our guest today was the Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan-Simpson, president of Auburn Seminary. Thank you very much for joining us on Future Hindsight. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was really a pleasure. As we slide towards the end of 2021, we're almost at the end of our season on The Social Contract. Next time on Future Hindsight, our final interview of this series will feature an academic and author who has a bold vision for the future of the social contract. Professor Manuel Pastor says mutuality and movements can build new, fairer economic and social systems grounded in solidarity. We celebrate people who beat the odds when what we should be doing is lifting up people who change the odds, who make the system fairer so that everyone can succeed. That's next time on Future Hindsight. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, Reva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw, 
of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.